0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. How are you today? Thanks for stopping by. I have an incredibly interesting story to share with you today. My guest's name is Victor Hagani. He is the author of a new book called The Missing Billionaires, A Guide to Making Better Financial Decisions, in which he explores the fact that most family fortunes go away over time meeting their demise in the hands of heirs who lack a unified investment and spending strategy, and thus the wealth eventually dissipates and flutters into the wind. Victor knows a great deal about fluctuations in net worth. Indeed, the highest profile entry in his resume is that of co-founding partner of the hedge fund long-term capital management. In the mid to late 90s, Victor saw the hedge fund's value soar, For the first several years of its existence by 40% annual compound rates of interest before fees, adding billions and billions of dollars to the hedge funds balance sheet. However, in 1998, in a most spectacular fashion, the fund lost 90% of its value and eventually had to be bailed out by a consortium of 14 banks, which invested $3.6 billion under the supervision of the Federal Reserve to save the fund because... So many of the fund's positions were interrelated with other banks' liquidity. Therefore, a collapse of the fund could have catalyzed a crash of a broader banking system. Does this sound familiar? Because it happened about 10 years to the day after uh, long-term capital management with uh, Lehman Brothers and a few other banks as part of the Great Recession. Nevertheless, Victor forged on. And one of the most interesting parts of this is Victor sharing very candidly about his state of mind during the collapse that he largely oversaw. He was a co-founding member and he ran the London branch and he ran the London office for long-term capital management. So he was a very influential guy at that firm and to his credit and very graciously, he shares what it was like to go through that unique and horrible process and most interestingly how he moved on from it and he's done very well. In the meantime, he also reminded us that, you know, some things we've probably forgotten about long-term capital management. And that's the fact that the banks that bailed out the fund got their money plus a modest return back. And before the fund imploded, it returned a great deal of principal to the original investors. So those guys were made whole. The people that ended up taking a hit on it were the partners themselves and some of the later investors, including some Swiss banks, that did take a big, nasty black eye from that debacle. In this interview, Victor shares great stories from his four-decade career in finance that began in 1984 at Solomon Brothers, where he eventually became a managing director in the bond arbitrage group, made famous by Michael Lewis in a little book called Liar's Poker. Ever heard of it? I bet you have. The book, as I mentioned, is called The Missing Billionaire's And it outlines a careful study of the academic literature on investing and the thought-provoking discussions Victor's had with friends, colleagues, and investors in all these years. He has concluded that savers can and should do much better, a philosophy that he puts to work at his wealth management company, Elm Wealth, that he started in 2011. Victor is a graduate of the London School of Economics. I spoke to him from his home in Wilson, Wyoming, that is suburban Jackson Hole. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Victor Hagani. So are you in Jackson Hole today? I am. How's the weather out there? You're in between seasons almost, right? This is like the
1: perfect weather. It's uh, getting cool. The colors are gorgeous. It's phenomenal. Great
0: time of year. How long have you been going out there?
1: Been going out here since 1992 and found a lost family member out here, lost in that my mom had never told me about her, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) a black sheep cousin who's wonderful. And yeah, and it's really because of them that we wound up buying a place out here, even though we had been living in London which was so far away. And then mm. somehow this vacation home turned into uh, the real home for us. So we've been living out here for the last five years full time. But going back, you know, we've, we've had a house here since about '09 and was coming more or less since 2000 regularly.
0: You grew up in London?
1: I grew up in the New York area until I was 13, lived in Iran for a few years, then lived in London through college, then back to the States where I worked for Solomon then to London when I started working for LTCM. And then we stayed in London until just
0: a few years ago. So we had all of our three kids there. You're my second Iranian guest of the week. No way. Yes, it's a very Persian-rich week here on Crazy Money. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. What years were you in Tehran? Uh, 76 to 78. I mean, that must have been crazy. What was going on during those years?
1: Well, in the beginning, when I was there and I was adjusting to it, you know, it was great. You know, everything seemed fine. But by the end, the cinemas, I remember coming home on a school bus and the cinemas were burning, the banks were burning. And like the really scary thing was that nobody was obeying any traffic conventions. So you could drive on the right, drive on the left, you know, drive sideways over humps. No traffic lights were being obeyed. And it was kind of scary. You know, there was just people running around you know, left and right. And then our school closed down. And then we were under martial law where you couldn't be out. You couldn't be outside like after 8 p.m. and, you know, until the morning. So that was kind of weird living under martial law for a while. And then eventually we left.
0: Your dad and mom are both Iranian?
1: No, no, just my dad. My mom's
0: American. Okay. And so that's in between the Shah and the revolution,
1: so Khomeini had not come, the Shah had not left, but it was getting really, really
0: sort of dangerous and crazy there right at the end. And so you went back to London to finish your schooling?
1: Well, we wound up in London, like living in a hotel because my dad thought we'd be going back to Iran any day for me to continue high school and so on. He just didn't believe at the time that it was going to be long lasting. So we sort of set up camp in London and then one day my dad said, you know, you probably ought to go back to school again after I would missed about six months of my junior year of high school. And I was like, okay. So I, you know, rolled up to a school, the American school in London, and they said, you know, where's your transcript? And I said, we don't have a transcript, but I do have a passport. <laughs> and right. they, and they, they took me in and they took me right into my junior year and let me finish on time. And it was great. You know, I was really very grateful to the American school in London for that.
0: Yeah. How old were you when you discovered that you had a gift for mathematics? (laughs) I don't think I've ever really discovered that I
1: have a gift. I'm facile, but I've seen people with a gift for math and they're
0: different than me. I don't believe you for a minute, Victor. I (laughs) I, I, I believe it's true. I'm not saying there's nobody in the world more quantitatively gifted than you, but you've (laughs) got to have a gift for it. You've got to be inclined to it to do what you've done in your career. (laughs) Certainly inclined
1: to it. Yeah, I've always, I've always loved math and found it easy, but I don't have the real gift for math that the really gifted people have. Yeah, I just always liked puzzles and problems. I think I was more of a, somebody that just loved puzzles and I would just like doggedly get into different kinds of puzzles You know, and games. I loved games always. What did you think you'd be when you were a kid? A doctor. You thought you'd be a doctor? A doctor. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. I told everybody... People would say, you know, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd be a doctor, doctor, doctor. And uh, I loved it. And then just, I don't know when it happened. But one day I stopped saying that. I have no idea when it happened. I, it must have been when people stopped asking me for one thing.
0: <laughs> but That's a cultural stereotype, isn't it, though? That, you know, Iranian parents want their, their sons to be doctors? Maybe, yeah. Maybe I
1: said it and then there was so much smiling that went on. But I really felt it. And I remember I loved animals. I had so many pets growing up. You know, I was also like really into, you know, like cutting up, well, cutting them up when they were dead, you know. So I I did a lot. I was really into dissecting everything. And I had some nice knives. I used to build models. I did a lot of model airplane stuff and
0: all that. Honey, Victor's cutting on the neighbor's dog again. We need to... (laughs) Okay, so you go to London School of Economics. That is not a pre med school, I assume. The doctor thing went away well before that. Yeah.
1: I sort of woke up one day in London. I woke up one day and I was like, wow, you know, I'm going to have to make a living here because, you know, like when we were living in Iran, before Iran, you know, that I didn't feel that my family really had any kind of wealth. But in Iran, my dad seemed really wealthy. And I just wasn't thinking too much about the future. I was kind of fun and all that. Then we went to London. It was sort of tumultuous. And then like one day I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get a job. I better get into a good school and start. So I, that was kind of right around then was when I started to think that I needed to uh, earn a living for myself. It sort of hadn't occurred to me too much for a while
0: until then. How'd you get yourself into the bonds business?
1: It kind of happened. I mean, I was a senior senior at the London School of Economics and I was trying to get into tech. My summer job before I finished college was at a subsidiary of Motorola in Silicon Valley in Cupertino. Cupertino mm. was a dive. It was dead <laughs> when I was there. You can't believe you can't believe how absolutely, you know, moribund the place was in 1983. But anyway, sure. I wanted to get into tech. I was uh, one of the few people at the LSC who had a was doing like a double major in computer science and finance. And so I applied to graduate school uh, to do a a master's in computer science. And I got denied from all of them because they didn't really recognize that I had much training in computers. And so I don't know, I was like having, you know, having drinks with some friends and they were saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I don't know. And one of my friends said to me, merchant banking. I was like, what's that? He said, that's what you got to do. Merchant banking. And the next thing I knew, I was applying to all these, you know, merchant banks, which were the investment banks of London. And I applied to a few American investment banks too. And I got like maybe three job offers, one from SG Warburg that was like, you know, the blue chip UK merchant bank, eventually one from Solomon and one from JP Morgan. Well, the SG Warburg one was like, yes, we'd like you to come work for us. You know, first, we're going to start you off with a secondment in uh, malaysia or something like that and i'm like what what's a secondiment i never heard the word before but i did notice that they were going to be paying me like twelve thousand pounds or something like that so you know the u.s ones just really dominate i wasn't even thinking about the sg warburg one with the secondiment thing i thought it was like something you put on food but it was like they send you away for a long time and don't pay you anything it sounds like an internship in the field Yeah, it was it was crazy. Well, it didn't last too much longer after that. And then JP Morgan and Solomon gave me offers. I asked my dad, like, what do you think? Which one should I take? And he said, Which one is he didn't say it in exactly these words, but it was like, which one is less structured? And I said, Oh, Solomon for sure. You know, it's just chaos over there when I went in. And he said, Well, do that one. What do you mean by that? I think he meant, you know, which one was gonna really let me rise let a person rise faster. You know, like JP Morgan was a very structured program. You know, you go in, there's a long training course, they move you around from division to division, they give you this wonderful training. But you know, at Solomon, it's like, (laughs) right. and my dad just thought that he thought that I would, uh, you know, whatever he thought, maybe it would be better to go to a place that's just more rough and tumble. And so, you know, I chose Solomon, even though Solomon was paying less, which kind of made a difference to me, you know, like $10,000, of, of starting salary at the time was less at Solomon. But boy, was Solomon great.
0: <laughs> that is the bank and the desk actually made famous in the book Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know Michael pretty well. Michael
1: went to the LSC the same time I was there, I think, but we didn't meet. So Michael started at Solomon either the same year as me or the year later, but I was in research and he was in sales and trading to begin with. But anyway, yeah, we got to be friends over time as well. What'd you learn there and what'd
0: you get good at at Solomon?
1: Boy, I mean, uh, <laughs> what didn't I learn there? I mean, it was, you know, learned about, about markets, about selling your ideas, about logical analysis, about having a thick skin. My first few assignments from the research department, I would go out to the trading floor and get yelled at, you know, <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> and loyalties and friendships too. I mean, my uh, I have so many friends uh, still from my days at Solomon and and my boss Bob Koprash, who gave me that first job and hired me and trained me in research, uh, he came to our book launch in uh, New York a couple of weeks ago when we uh, had a party to celebrate the launch of the book. So yeah, it was uh, yeah it was it was a great environment to learn and to just think that everything was kind of doable. You know that everything was was questionable. You could question everything, challenge everything. It's almost like everybody had access to the CEO. It was incredible. He'd walk around with a cigar. That
0: was good friend
1: or Meriwether. Yeah. Yes, a, a good friend. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, John Meriwether too. But I mean, the CEO of the company was so
0: accessible. It was incredible for a company like that. So for a young person, it was you're on the front lines. You're learning from the leaders. Can you explain just kind of briefly what? Bond arbitrage is, and, and I know i 'm not doing a very good job even describing it, but tell me a little bit about the business that started Solomon and kind of led to long term capital management
1: the business of what we called bond arbitrage and arbitrage is really a uh, you know, a misused word i mean arbitrage is uh, buying something for one price and selling it at another for no risk. You know arbitrage kind of implies no risk but it's highly risky, obviously. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's like a shorthand, you know, it's a shorthand for buying two things, for uh, trading in two things that are very similar, but have quite different valuations, right? So, you know, the archetypical sort of example that people give is a 29 and a half year bond that is, has a much higher yield than a 29 and three quarters year bond. But you know, maybe we can come up with a better example. But, you know, the thing is that within the, fixed income or bond market, you know, that you can see that you could have lots of different things that are very similar to each other. Then to the extent, though, that there's segmentation in the people who can buy different things or who have to sell them from time to time, you know, you can wind up with different valuations on these different kinds of instruments. So what would be a really good example beyond, well, why don't we talk about, you know, just uh, the futures versus cash basis, you know, which has been in the news a lot lately. So, uh, you know, we have futures contracts on bonds, these derivatives, and it turns out that some people want to use those futures rather than buying the bonds on which they're a derivative. And so sometimes bond futures, futures on a particular set of deliverable bonds can trade expensively where somebody, an arbitrage or a bond relative value arbitrage trader can buy the uh, cheapest to deliver bond and sell the futures contract, finance the bond for three months until delivery, deliver the bond into the contract, and make an almost guaranteed profit as long as you're able to hold on to that position, even though you have it financed and everything, as long as you can hold on to that position for the three months. Now, obviously, the, it's such a tight trade, right, that, that the expected profit, when there is any expected profit, there is going to be very small you know, it might only be in the vicinity of if it's an eighth of a point, you know, that's an eighth of a percent per quarter, like that would be quite a lot for it to be an eighth of a point, 0.125% per quarter misvalued. So obviously, like you don't want to get somebody's capital and just put that trade on and earn this extra 12 and a half basis points per quarter, or 50 basis points per annum. Like people would say, I'm not going to give you my capital to do that. So you say, okay, well, how about I'm going to leverage that up, 10 to 1 or 20 to 1. And now that sort of 5% annualized rate, sorry, that half a percent annualized rate, you know, now turns into a 5 or 10% annualized rate. And it starts to look like an attractive return on capital. But the problem is that what happens if you've put that trade on and you've even locked up the financing and everything, but now all of a sudden, the futures gets even much more misvalued. It gets a quarter point more misvalued and you have this trade on 20 to one. Well, if it moves by a quarter of a percent against you and it's 20 to one, you have a 5% loss. That's like potentially a really big deal and you might not be able to hold on to it. So that's kind of a good example of how of how it works and what
0: the risks can be, etc. As John Maynard Keynes said, markets can remain irrational longer then you can remain solvent sometimes, right? And so you might have the right idea, but it's got to be seen through until that position can be unwound, right?
1: Yes, absolutely, yeah. And that's what our book is about in a way, right? It's the sizing decision versus the selection decision that you can make good investments, you can find the right investments, but if you size them too big, they can really hurt you. And it's not only, you know, particularly if you use leverage, but even if you don't use leverage, having too much risk, can really eat into your compound returns over time and, and leave you worse off you know, despite having identified good investments.
0: So I want to talk more about long-term capital management, but this seems like a good time to introduce one of the concepts from the book that I found very interesting. Let's talk about the exercise of flipping a coin that I am certain will turn up heads 60% of the time. I did the exercise that you have on your website And it was interesting. But explain the concept for us, please. And then we'll talk about how that's relevant to both how each of us manages our stocks and bonds and what happened for you over the course of your career.
1: Sure. So seven or eight years ago, I think we
0: did an experiment, my co-researcher,
1: Rich Dewey, where we uh, set up a game, which is available on our website to play, where we program a coin to have a 60% chance of landing heads And then we gave people $25 and said, you can play this game for half an hour, flip to your heart's content, make your bets. And uh, depending on how things work out for you, we'll pay you however much money you've made up to a limit. And we didn't tell them the limit, but it was $250. And if you got close to it, we told you you you're close to that. So they could sort of uh, taper down and stop hitting that limit. And what we found was that people playing this game sort of didn't have a really good toolkit for how to play it in a sensible way. A few people did, but by and large, you know, we saw all kinds of erratic kind of betting and like 20% of the people went bust actually, even <laughs> though they were betting on a coin that is 60% chance of winning. Yeah. So, so it really gave us this, it really strengthened our belief that this question of how to size your bets needs more attention and education and discussion out there. So that was the coin flip experiment. It got, we wrote it up in a journal eventually. And, you know, it was really fascinating and it's still fun. I still like playing the game. I think one of the crazy things in playing the game is just how like every other time I play it, I'm convinced that our random number generator isn't working because random (laughs) just never really feels random, you know? And, And of course, here we are, we have all these really sophisticated, trained people playing it. And they would occasionally, they would just be, they just couldn't resist betting on tails, even though they knew it was crazy. It was like, well, I got four heads in a row. I had to bet on tails. That was just one of many different strange things, strange behaviors we saw in people playing the game.
0: So I think it would be interesting if I could write a program or have a program and just give it the rules and let it play as opposed to me playing it and having to make a decision for every single flip of the coin, both on what I'm going to choose and how much I'm going to bet right? And that plays into your thing that we have to have a system in our investments and we have to trust the system as opposed to just waffling back and forth between what our goals are supposed to be.
1: Yeah. And time is just such a difficult thing to manage because we got people to play this game. Then we said to them, you know, if you had played it like this, if you had bet 15% of your bank on every single flip, 15% on heads every time, you would have made $250 quickly by the end. And you tell that to them and then you say, Do you want to play again? And they're like, Yeah. <laughs> you know? And we talked to them about that. We didn't let them play again because you know we did care about you know the money we had for the experiment. Sure. For the sure. But for sure, they would have played it exactly like that for a half an hour, or however long it took them to get $250, right? But when it comes to investing, like we have to do that. We have to be disciplined like that and boring. And we have to be boring like that for 40 years. That's what's so difficult. Like it's to be rational for half an hour is is a piece of cake. But it really gets tough, you know, like when years, years go by and you start thinking, oh, everything's different. What I don't know what what it is, but it's just it's so hard to sort of be to follow a set of a simple set of rules for a long period of time. And you know, I think that nobody is a passive investor for more than five or ten years. We've heard this from other wealth managers that like people make a plan. This is going to be their asset allocation. They're going to stick to it forever. You know, And like three years later, they're changing it.
0: I think you're making a pretty big assumption that most people can be rational for a whole half hour at a time, but <laughs> you've probably got a kind, generous heart. I found that after, I don't know, 10 or so flips, I started to get bored. And I was like, okay, let's see what happens if I bet 10 bucks. At first it was like, then I was like $5 then $6. And then I'd lose and I'd lower the bet. And then I'd be like, ah, screw it. I'm going to bet $15. And of course it's going up and down. And so really being able to, at times when your emotions are driving you, being able to come back to the rules is that much more important around both sizing and choices that you're making in, in your picks, right? Yep. Hey everybody, we'll be right back with Victor. But for one moment, I want to ask you a favor. I can do that, can I? We're friends. You like me. You you want me to be successful, don't you? Well, then go to the show notes right now, please, and click on the link to rate and review Crazy Money. As an independent podcaster, the only way other people are going to find out whether or not Crazy Money is worth their time is if you, the loyal, fabulous, good-looking, kind to animals listener, goes on there onto Apple Podcasts and writes a review and says, "Hey." person who doesn't know what crazy money is because the title is wildly nonspecific and perhaps distracting. You should be listening to this because Paul is interesting. Paul is funny. He gets great guests. He asks good questions. He cares. And I get something out of it. So please do that. Hey, and while you're in there, why not click on the link to subscribe to my Substack? What is Substack? Well, Substack is eh, basically a blogging platform for the newer age of the internet world. So every two weeks, you'll get an essay from me directly into your email inbox with some thoughts on money, the meaning of life, and assorted things that piss me off. I write about everything with how frustrated I am with all the different streaming services I'm paying for, and I don't know who I'm paying, and I don't know how much, and I don't know where I subscribe to it, but somehow I got to get a handle on it because we're spending like three grand a year on this stuff. I want to write on stuff that other things that kind of make me mad politically sometimes too. So check it out. It's uh, right there in the show notes. Click on the links to rate and review Crazy Money and to subscribe to my Substack. Thank you for your time. Now back to Victor Hagani. So let's go back. How did long-term capital management start? A lot of these guys came from the Solomon desk, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, it was after this treasury uh, auction scandal where Solomon got in trouble for trying to buy too much government debt in some of the auctions. The regulators, I guess, not sure. I guess the Treasury or the Fed or whatever asked the CEO, the president, and the head of trading to leave the company. Uh, eventually, the head of trading, John Merriweather, was exonerated and he was allowed to come back to Solomon. But he had been gone for I don't know six months or so, and uh, there was a new CEO in charge of the firm. A good friend and Strauss weren't able to come back. Um, you know, I guess they were not given the same treatment as John Merriweather was there. But John, you know, was outside the company and, you know, a lot of people had come to him and said, oh, you should start a hedge fund and we'd love to invest with you. Coming back to the firm was just a little bit less attractive to him than the alternative of doing that. So he decided that he would start this hedge fund and sort of one by one, well, a number of people joined him that weren't at Solomon, so or weren't full time at Solomon, so Bob Merton and Myron Scholes joined. Maybe Myron was a little bit later, but Bob joined right in the beginning and a few others. And then some of my partners at Solomon started to leave one by one. And and I decided to leave as well. I had just gotten married and I thought it was, you know, I thought it would be a great adventure. And I wanted to stay with John and with some of the other partners who had left. I don't know what number partner I was that had left Solomon. But it was, it was probably one of the earlier ones that left to join John and, and Eric had left before me. And that was it. You know, we, uh, we got a lot of interest from people to invest with us. We liked the idea of, of being able to invest our own money in our business, which we weren't really able to do at Solomon. And, you know, it was just a really exciting kind of fun adventure. We had lots of long term plans for what, what we were going to grow the business into and do with it that were unfortunately cut short.
0: And what was the theory that you all, what was the secret sauce behind your business model? The secret sauce? Yeah, it doesn't seem too secret now anymore. I have to remember. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem because a few years in, what you guys were doing was really working well. And then other people started to do it, which makes...
1: It was, yeah, it was was not a very well-kept secret. You know, once we were out, you know, in the early days of what we were doing, when we were doing it at Solomon Brothers, it was really, you know, the secret sauce was bringing together quantitative models for evaluating the relative value of different securities, together with good understanding of flows and the financing market for these things. And, you know, what were the segmentations, you know, what would be catalysts to make things revert back to more fair values, um, you know, etc. And so, you know, I think that that's what we brought to, to LTCM as well. And that's what we were doing. We were trying to do this combination of trying to understand what was driving the flows, how far the flows could go together with, you know, having an idea of what the valuations looked like, what the carry would look like also. I mean, some of these trades didn't need to, or many of these trades didn't need to converge. They just needed to age. So some of them would have a date with destiny, where you would they would converge if you could hold them. Like the example I was giving earlier of a three month bond versus futures trade. Those certainly don't seem too secret <laughs> these days. But those were, you know, I think those were our competitive advantages, and you know we had other competitive advantages when we were at Solomon Brothers, which we no longer had once we left Solomon Brothers. You know, the fact that we were sort of hidden inside of Solomon Brothers, the fact that we. Could kind of have a better idea of what was going on in lots of different flows and areas. Like, I think for sure, on reflection, that our business had a much greater chance of long term success being within a large financial institution and and not being too big a part of that financial institution. You know, like if we would be 10% of the risk and activity of a big financial institution assuming that the leaders of the financial institution understood what we were doing and were believers in what we were doing and wouldn't decide to cut everything, you know, if we were down a certain amount. So anyway, I think that was another secret sauce that we left behind at Solomon.
0: You're talking about quantitative models. You had big time brains at this shop. You had two Nobel Prize winners, Merton and it was Scholes, right? The co-author of the Black-Scholes formula, which is a formula for which he won the Nobel Prize that helps price options. So really high profile academics that came in and helped prove the, I guess that gave a, a halo effect of the business model that that those models would work. And for what, four years, you guys made 40% a year return, something like that? 40% before fees, 30% after fees. Yep. This was during a bull market, but still those were incredible returns.
1: Yeah. Incredible to us too. We didn't expect Returns like that. And, you know, I guess there were warning signs in there. I mean, everything that we touched, we had a Midas touch or something. The trades we would do, it's like, whoa, what happened there? It converged. It was kind of remarkable how quickly things were going our way. And, you know, in retrospect, there was a flow that was
0: also doing what we were doing. And so things were just happening faster, you know? Then what happened in 1998? You were the golden children of Wall Street, and then things unraveled very quickly so I guess the first thing that I
1: would say is that, you know, one of the things that we know now, 25 years later, that we didn't know then, 2008, you know, the markets, uh, you know, with nothing to do with LTCM, the markets just went totally crazy. And so actually, I think it's fair to say that the 1998 crisis definitely had a focus, had a big focus on LTCM. And, you know, it didn't have to be that way, but 2008 didn't. So, you know, I think the first thing to realize is that, periodically, the market just gets into a real big liquidity crisis where banks just want to reduce everything that they can to survive and to be the last man standing. So all of a sudden, banks, you know, which are the counterparties, which hold a lot of risk and also fund a lot of risk, that the banks periodically just decide that they need to pull back on everything, maybe because they have losses in their lending businesses. So all of a sudden, they're like, we don't, want to have any more, we don't want to do any more financing. We don't want to do any more repo with people. We don't want to finance long, short books, whatever. That just causes a really big crisis in all kinds of valuations as players that hold these positions have to unwind them and find other people to take them. But it's really hard because nobody wants them without leverage and there's no leverage around to get them. So they almost have to move to a point where they become attractive trades with much less leverage. Mm. So I think that that even though the 1998 crisis and what happened to LTCM was like very particular to LTCM and was very particular to some of the losses that some of the mark to market losses that we suffered in 1998 were very much the market sort of saying whoever winds up with these positions is going to have to take them off and they're going to have to buy this back and so let's just buy it first so that we can sell it to them later and and that sort of thing but at the same time i would say that the type of crisis that washed ltcm away you know is a crisis that probably comes every so often and unfortunately our positions were were too big and we we thought we had a lot of contingent capital we thought that it would be easy to raise capital from all these people that were dying to invest with us when things <laughs> were going well <laughs> you know and, and so as we started to lose money we went out to all these guys and it's like hey you know we think you know, we want to open the doors. We want you to come in. We think the opportunities are attractive. And many people said, yeah, we're in, you know, we're in and we'll invest, but we'll only invest if you raise this amount. And we were like, okay, we're really close. We're really close, but it just kept moving away from us. But we were close. I think we were close to raising, you know, some capital from investors before, before we wound up, you know, effectively raising capital from the 14 banks.
0: Right. You talked about the liquidity crisis. The models were supposed to be able to predict that kind of thing, but in the end, they didn't. Is that correct? The risk models that we had, in some sense, you know, it's,
1: it's not clear whether the risk models weren't giving us you know, a half a percent chance or a 1% chance per annum of something like this happening. Now, mm-hmm. who knows what the probability of this happening was? I mean, now, you know, once it happened, it happened. The risk models certainly told us that very large losses were much more probable than what you would get from a normal distribution, right? So mm-hmm. if we look at what we mean by fat tails is that the probability of large gains or large losses, but in particular large losses, we knew was much greater than that which was implied by the normal daily volatility that we were experiencing. So we knew that, that financial assets, and in particular leveraged financial assets, have very fat tails, and we modeled that we certainly felt that the probability of something happening along the lines of what did happen was a, low, a very low probability event. But sure. we didn't think it was impossible. Right. You know, yeah. We thought it was a very low probability event. You know, and we thought that the returns, the expected returns and compensation for taking sort of the normal variability and this very fat-tailed variability of probability of losses, you know, we thought it was worth it. We thought the return... Warranted taking that risk, and of course, for most of our investors, they were investing, you know, one or two percent of their wealth or capital with us. You know, we weren't; wasn't like if uh, we're if, taking you
0: grandma's know, savings and yeah, we, speculating we had, with it.
1: We had, yeah, we had none of any grandma that we knew of. Uh, we you know we had <laughs> we didn't have the uh, the majority of anybody's savings except for our own. You know, which I think is a really you know interesting lesson from LTCM in terms of just thinking about how much skin in the game is right for a person that can invest in their own business.
0: We'll come right back to that after a couple more personal questions about when this starts to happen. Now, I remember I was in sales and the stakes were much, much lower. I was making, I don't know, a quarter of a million dollars when I was 32 or something. And in the beginning of the dot-com bubble unraveling, I remember looking out into my sales pipeline and seeing just tumbleweeds. And the feeling I had in my gut was like, we screwed. I mean, I felt sick to my stomach, but you're dealing on to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. What's it feel like when you see things starting to head over a cliff and there's not much that you can do? What was that like for you personally?
1: It was terrible, terrible feeling. You know, However, that we also had responsibility to act. So it wasn't, you know, that we couldn't be a deer in the headlights. I mean, it was very Just this terrible feeling, but we were also really busy (laughs) and we were really engaged, you know, in terms of figuring out what's the right thing to do. And, you know, as, as everything was evolving, you know, there were many discussions, you know, we were evaluating a lot of options. So, so we were busy and engaged, you know, as later on after we had gone, after we had gone over crashed, and now we were in this position of unwinding things, the feelings got more poignant and acute. It took a while to get over all of that for sure. It was really painful. I mean, it was made for me personally, it was made substantially less painful than otherwise by a feeling of community with my partners, with my family, with my friends. You know, it just felt it was embarrassing, but you know, it was all in good faith, and the biggest losers were us. You <laughs> know, I mean, at the end of the day, we were we were the biggest losers. I'll tell you one funny story. I think you're going to, you know, because I know you have a sense of humor. <laughs> Just one, one funny story. I think it's a funny story looking back on it. So after we lost all the money, you know, we still had outside investors in, in the fund, although we had dividended a lot of our earnings to most of them at the end of 97. But, you know, we lost a lot of money for the investors that were still with us in 98. And John Merriweather and our partnership, we decided we were going to go to every single investor And tell them exactly what happened and apologize to them and tell them how it happened and what happened. And, you know, you don't need to read about this anywhere. We're going to tell you exactly what happened. And so I was in Europe. John came over to Europe and we went to all of our European clients around the continent, in particular in Germany and Switzerland and so on. And we would go into these meetings and John would start to tell the story and, you know, we were doing, you know, three or four or five of these meetings each day and traveling around and so on. Like after this third day of this, John would tell the story. And I just started, I was like in this sort of dream world where I started to like think to myself, okay, this time it's going to have a different ending. <laughs> like, come on, John, give it a different ending this time, you know, because it just was like so surreal, you know, that yeah. I couldn't, I, like, I just couldn't tell reality from imagination at that point. He was telling this story and it was like, well, maybe th- maybe this time is going to have a different ending and you know, I'll wake up or something. But anyway, yeah, it was, it was really painful.
0: I was interested to learn actually in chapter eight of your book and in some other research I was doing that, as you said, when I think about long-term capital management, I was like, oh, that hedge fund blew up. Everybody lost all their money. Some people lost a lot of money, but not everybody. Like You gave three quarters of it or half of it back at the end of 97, like you just mentioned.
1: Yeah. So at the end of 97, we dividended out all the profits to all the investors pretty much. And as a result of that, almost all of our investors had a positive IRR on their investments You know, because we had made so much money over those first four years. So almost all of our investors uh, made money. The typical investor made a 20% IRR actually on their money, our early investors. Because remember, we closed the fund pretty early on We just had these early investors and like all of us, you know, they compounded up really fast and we gave this dividend, which everybody was unhappy about that we were making the dividend to because- Because they wanted to stay in the fund, right? They wanted to stay in the fund and, you know, keep compounding. And we were like, well, the opportunities are limited and, you know, we don't want to get too big and we want to keep, you know, a good return and, you know, and we want more of the alpha for us, us partners, you know. Well, you got it. So, yeah, we got it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly very few investors had a loss. Unfortunately, you know, UBS was one of those investors that had a loss, you know, that uh, it's, it's kind of a long long story yep. that can be read about elsewhere. UBS lost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but away from that, very few investors lost money except for us partners. As you said, we got just what we wanted. <laughs> you know, more of the return. And that's really the whole uh, by the way that question is is the focus of a Harvard Business School case study that's a great case study in finance where Andre Perold, uh, one of the professors there, wrote this case study up. It's very realistic. And it says, okay, you know, it's 1997. You're at the end of 97 and the partners are debating whether to pay out this dividend or not. What should they do? And I think that's a fascinating question. We had a lot of internal debate. I came down in favor of making the dividend, which, you know, I look back on now as a mistake. Other of our partners uh, were arguing strongly for not making the dividend and growing the fund and making us safer. You know, it's really an interesting, an interesting case study for people to learn from.
0: I don't always deal well with regret, and I can overthink things and and worry too much about things I have no control over. Did it take you a while to just stop saying woulda, coulda, shoulda about what went down? Yeah, sure, but the main part is that it did
1: stop. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the, I think that's the lesson for people. What's interesting in the experience is, yeah, I mean, it did stop. You know, it went on for a while. I don't remember exactly how long, but it it stopped. Yeah, I mean, what, what do they say about what do we regret at the end of our lives? You know, what we regret are the things that we didn't do, right? I think that's what people say. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, we get to the end of our, you know, as, we, as our lives go on, and especially if things are okay for us, if we're healthy, if we're happy, if our family is is doing well, we kind of realized that, okay, who knows what would have happened on some other path. We can't choose some other path and be sure that things would still be good. And, and I think that I've learned so much from going through that experience and kind of seeing, wow, you know, like I'm not sure, I'm not going to say some things out loud that should not be said out loud. So I'll just, I'll just stop there. But I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of shared experience that people have with going through really difficult times and coming out the other end and realizing, wow, you know, like
0: this is, it's okay. (laughs) The book is called the missing billionaires. How does all of this inform what you want to share with the reader? Not just long-term care, but your career as a whole, you want to, you want to give the, the reader a deeper understanding of markets and their own behavior as investors. What is that you want to impart on them? I want, and my co-author James, we want to help people to
1: be equipped to make better financial decisions and to make better decisions in general, in some kinds of choices that we have to make under uncertainty, they don't lend themselves that well to, to really logical frameworks. But in general, we want to help people to be able to make better decisions by realizing that they have to do two things. They have to think probabilistically about outcomes and they have to Think about what's the appropriate objective function to apply those probabilities to. So in the case of money, that we shouldn't be focused on expected wealth or expected money. We need, to be, we need to focus on the expected happiness that the money gives us. We need to interpose an objective function that translates from money to what we really care about, to what we're getting from spending or giving away our money this general idea of having an objective function that really thinks about, you know, like, okay, are these negative outcomes just much, much worse than the positive outcomes are positive, you know, can be applied in many different, you know, in many different types of decision. But, you know, I think that the general idea of both having a probabilistic approach to thinking about decisions, you know, not just focusing on the most likely outcome or the base case outcome, but really thinking probabilistically and having an objective function that is appropriate for you in terms of what you care about, and um, you know as I say it works pretty well it works really well for uh, when it comes to money and wealth, and it works well in lots of other decisions too. and you know the decision theory behind it all you know, was really developed more generally, and it just so happens that it works really well when you start to get into money, because money is fungible. you know preferences over different kinds of goods or experiences are not as fungible and can be more difficult. And you get all kinds of weird, funny kinds of preference reversal things you know, that can happen. But when it comes to money, it's kind of a good way of thinking about things.
0: So when you talk about expected utility, that's kind of an economist's romantic way of saying, what do you want in life? What are the things you want to be funded? What kind of a lifestyle? How much do you want to work? How much do you want to play? And then everything has to work back from that. Because for these generations of billionaires that are missing that you say, that you refer to in the title, the Vanderbilts who should have hundreds of billionaires' uh, descendants, that they've gone through their wealth because their plan didn't meet their lifestyle. Is that right? Our best hypothesis for what made it
1: difficult for a lot of these families is that they took too much risk and a lot of risk that they weren't being compensated for, and that risk really ate into their compound returns. What kind of risk was it? I think in general it was taking a lot of uh, concentration risk. So you know the Vanderbilts might have been very concentrated in railroads and transportation. Mm-hmm. You know instead of having a much more diversified portfolio. So you know a single stock, a single stock has volatility of thirty or forty percent a year whereas the stock market at large you know, is more like 15 to 20% per year of, of variability. And that extra risk, if you're taking that es- extra risk and you're not getting more return for doing it, it really hits your compound return really dramatically. That might warrant a couple of minutes of explanation, if it's okay with you. And I'll come back to that sure. in a second. You know, in the second part, right, is that you also need a spend? what you were talking about, you need a spending policy an approach to spending your money that's consistent with how you're investing the risk that you're taking in your investing the expected return in your investing and the spending needs to be consistent with that which means that the level shouldn't be too high and the spending also needs to be flexible so if your wealth goes down you have to be willing to spend less if you're not willing to spend less you can't take risk in your portfolio and having an inflexible and or too high of a spending policy combined with taking too much risk in your portfolio, you know, just sends you off a cliff of wealth destruction really, really quickly. And, you know, you can see that in a quick spreadsheet, you know, simulation. You know, what I mean by risk eating return, right, is uh, let's start off with a really simple example. You know, you, you have some investment which makes a 50% return one year and it loses 50% the next. Well, your average return is zero, right? Plus 50 and minus 50 average out to zero. But if you go up 50 and down, then down 50 or down 50 and then up fifty, you wind up with 75 cents on the dollar. So you know, we call that volatility drag. We call that, you know, the risk is sort of eating the compound return. The average return is zero, but your compound return is minus whatever, 12.5% a year per period. Well, that seems like a contrived example. It seems like a silly example. But let me give you another example that's a little bit more realistic. Let's say that I give you a crystal ball and I say, okay, here's an investment portfolio. It's a concentrated set of stocks. But I'm going to guarantee you that over the next 100 years, the average annual return that you will earn will be 5% a year above the risk-free rate. Guaranteed, that will be the average. But it has 30% volatility per year. So one year will go up 35% and the next year will go down 25%. But it's going to average out. One year it might go up 15%, you know, whatever. But on average, you'll make 5% a year, the average annual return, and the volatility will be 30% a year. So there's no risk at all in terms of the long-term average annual return. And I say to you, okay, how much of your money do you want to put into that? It's the only investment you can make. You're wealthy. How much do you want to invest in that? Well, somebody might say, oh, if you're basically taking out the risk of the average return, I'll get leveraged and invest in that. Well, let's just say that you... Weren't that gung-ho about it? You just said, okay, well, I'll just put all my money into that. So I put all my money in that. Well, what's your compound return if you put all your money in that? The answer is your compound annual return is a half a percent a year above the risk-free asset. Instead of it being this 5% average, right? by going up 35 and down 25, it takes you to $101 from 100 to 101 or down uh, 25 and up 35 takes you to 101. So that's a half a percent a year of return. So your compound return is just a half a percent a year. You've given up all of the positive expected return of your portfolio by having this risk. Now, if your risk was more like 15% a year, you know, which the stock market has been more like 15 to 20, but if your return, if the volatility were 15% a year, so you went one year you went up 120, you went up 20% one year and the next year you went down 10%, so you still were averaging 5 with 15% volatility your compound return would be about 4% instead of a half a percent. So you can sort of see how that extra risk, this idiosyncratic risk that probably a lot of people had in their portfolios in the central case of earning the average return really hurt your compound return a lot. Now, if your compound return is a half a percent a year, but you're thinking, I'm going to make 5% a year, and so you decide you're going to spend 5% of your money per year, you, know, you can see that you're right <laughs> off the cliff you know you're you're just going to you're you know within 30 years you'll have no money left especially if you go with like yeah. a 5% fixed amount you know that you're not even moving the five but even with 5% changing it so you could imagine how some of these wealthy families they got to be wealthy quickly so they said oh i'm going to buy a house you know I'll buy a house and I'll, I'll get a block in manhattan i'll buy a house for 3 million dollars and fix it all up with 200 rooms well it only cost me 2 or 3 million dollars that's like maybe 5% of my wealth that doesn't seem crazy i mean Today, people spend more on their houses. Well, I have 250 rooms. I'm going to have quite a lot of running expenses. Eventually, New York City will start to charge some property tax. But you know, some of these families had houses that were basically the footprint of Bergdorf Goodman. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, it just <laughs> wow, and it just set them in. You know, even though it seemed okay when they started, and they had advisors that would tell them, "This is okay. You can afford that." But eventually, they couldn't afford it. And when they couldn't afford it, they weren't able to, to cut the spending down quickly enough to keep it in line with the amount of wealth that they had and the returns that they were earning on their wealth.
0: How do you put these strategies into play for your clients at Elm Wealth? One of our missions
1: at Elm Wealth that we tell people is that we want to help you to invest a substantial amount of your wealth in equities comfortably for the long term. And so, you know, our idea is to try to help people to keep on average like 75% of their savings in equities and to make it more comfortable for them by us paying attention to what's going on, not paying attention by reading the paper necessarily, we do read the paper, but, but by having a response function, you know, by responding to changes in the market. So when the markets get really risky, we decrease exposures. When the markets have gone down a lot and expected returns in the future look higher, we increase exposures. When the markets have gone up a lot, the best example is what recently has happened, that interest rates have gone up a lot, but equities haven't gone down a lot, so equities look less attractive relative to safer assets, so we reduce exposure all else equal. We're changing people's portfolios according to these simple, transparent rules. We're doing it in a really simple way. We're not doing any sort of mean variance optimization. You know, we're just doing it in a way that a client could do it you know, on a piece of paper themselves if they had the information. We share all the information with them. And we hope that that's giving them this much more comfortable ride. So yeah, at the beginning of 2020, when everything went crazy, we reduced exposures because the, we were in a much more volatile environment. Well, that was a shame because markets bounced really quickly. But once they started to bounce we got back in because we have this disciplined set of rules. You know, we were like, okay, the markets have become kind of less risky now and they're going up. So we got back in again, you know, overall 2020 was okay for our clients, but in terms of returns, but in terms of the ride, I think it should have felt pretty good. You know, that here are my guys, they're uh, decreasing my exposures when it seems like the world is coming to an end. I like that. Okay. The world, (laughs) the world uh, rebounded faster. Okay, but then we got back in again, you know, so we didn't, you know, we obviously, yeah. you know, missed out. That's what we try to do for clients just a lot of communication, a lot of education, a lot of transparency, just keeping it simple. And just by keeping the fees really, really low, we charge 12 basis points. By keeping fees low, you're just really affecting people's expectations. Like people know that uh, when you're charging 12 basis points, you know, that they shouldn't, ex- they have reasonable expectations for what. You can achieve and do for them. We're trying to give them the market returns in an efficient, risk-adjusted way, using a simple set of rules, and and they know not to expect more from us. You know that from what we're doing. So,
0: so twelve basis points is 012 percent, right? Where other money management firms will charge half a percent or even a full point, right? Yeah, you probably don't take people to uh, to baseball games as much as the the Goldman advisors do. <laughs> No, having seen what you 've seen and done what you 've done for your career, is there any trouble in the financial system that you see that people are unaware of or that is not getting enough attention right now
1: You know I think that systematic risk and a crisis and so on is just always nearby you know it's never it 's never too far away, and i think it 's sort of hard to assess whether it 's more or less likely at any point in time i think it 's ever present we have a what do we have? We have a financial system which has a lot of leverage in it and it's always been that way because we have fractional banking. This is how it's been for 150 years or whatever or I don't know, or, or hundreds of years. You know, we think having banks as intermediaries, you know, is good for long-term economic growth. And so, you know, we have a financial system where there is just a mismatch built into the system, not only in the banks but then you know, all throughout the system as well. Now that changes over time; it ebbs and flows. At some times, you know, there's more or less leverage. But you know, any reasonable amount of leverage that we have, you know, today's leverage, ten years ago leverage, whatever, it's always enough leverage uh, for a really big problem to happen. And then the other thing that we have, so we have a system where leverage is uh, is just part of the architecture. And then the other thing that we have is that we have people, you know, and that. And that people have these tendencies that we've learned a lot about. We've learned a lot about it from all this behavioral economics research that's gone on, and we, you know, we all are aware of it much more now. You know, we have herding behavior. We have this extrapolation behavior. People are willing to extrapolate from the smallest amounts of data, you know, long into the future. It's always going to be <laughs> the way it's been the last right. three years. We have all these human behavioral foibles, and they're so hardwired in us. They're just. Always there and can sort of cause this endogenous risk to cause really big uh, crises. So I think that uh, I'm always worried and always, and you know, I think that one of the reasons that I decided to invest in the way that we invested Elm is that I just didn't want to be exposed to that. I wanted to minimize my exposure to uh, to ever, you know, being caught up in a crisis and needing to sell something because I had too much risk or that I had any leverage at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we can all do: is set ourselves up to weather the crises, you know, by not getting out over our skis at, at any t- time, and realizing, you know, that, yeah, I think a crisis is always around the corner. I mean, for sure, today there's plenty, there's plenty to be worried about, but but I think there always is, virtually always.
0: An appropriate skiing metaphor from the man in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Victor Hagani, the author of The Missing Billionaires, thank you so much for your time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? You can go to elmwealth.com. You, know, you can also just find us by typing in Victor
1: Hagani. We'll take you to Elm Wealth as well. We also have a YouTube channel where we've got a few, um, Elm Wealth YouTube, where we've got a few short videos that sort of talks about some of the things we were talking about here
0: today. I will put a link to some of those and the coin flip game In the show notes, I'm sure some people will want to go play the game, see how much they can make in a short period of time. (laughs) Victor, it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for your time and good luck with the book. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Well, that was extremely interesting for me. Hopefully it was for you. I guess if it wasn't, you wouldn't be listening all the way to the end to this outro here. You know, it's not every day you talk to somebody who's added tens of billions of dollars to a balance sheet and then watch it disappear in a very short period of time. And so Victor has very personal and also informed theoretical familiarity with what he covers in his new book, The Missing Billionaires. And it's, uh, it's probably for a little bit more of a sophisticated investor, but there's lots to be garnered from it. And he asks some important questions, especially size of positions versus the kind of stocks you're picking. And by the way, it all comes back also to maybe you shouldn't be picking stocks. We know that. As I mentioned in my interview with Farnoosh Tarabi last week, this is the second Iranian-American I've had in a row, totally coincidentally, And it's just a reminder of how much America has benefited from the presence of immigrants from relatively recently in the last 40 years. And so I'm gratified to have gotten to meet and speak with both of them. My other takeaway on this is that, you know, just soldiering on after a big defeat like the one the guys at long-term capital management took – Whose fault was it? It was their fault. And they made some bad bets. So they they didn't cover positions like they should have, or they they were a little aggressive with the leverage that they took. And in the end, a lot of people lost a lot of money. But then again, a lot of people did get their money back. Even if it was totally their fault, I'm impressed with the way Victor just, they moved on. They're like, we got to handle this shit sandwich of a situation. We got to resolve it. We got to do everything we can to make the best out of the lemons we've been served or the lemons that resulted from the bets that they took. And then they moved on with their lives after that. And they started another fund. And And since then, Victor's done very well managing other people's money at Elm Wealth, which seems to be the culmination of those decades of experience, the good and the bad that he experienced in all those years. Anyway, it was a treat to talk to Victor. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we will be back next week with NHL veteran, Daniel Carcillo. Daniel's got an incredible story. He was an enforcer for several teams in the NHL. He won two Stanley Cups in his career and played in several others. And he is now an advocate for brain health. He sustained brain injuries, watched some of his friends that played in the NHL die from brain injury. And now he's a passionate advocate for both the medicine of psilocybin and for brain health in general It's a fascinating conversation with Daniel Carcillo of the N, not the NBA. I was going to say the NBA. The NBA doesn't wear skates. He's from Canada. He was in the NHL. Daniel Carcillo. I know you're going to like it. So tune back in next week. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.